0: It's the Mark Stein Show. Mark.
1: Independence Day weekend on a not so glorious 4th in a very strange year. On Memorial Day, the Huzzahs were muted by lockdown. Five weeks later, lockdown has eased, but there are thousands on the streets of American cities who reject the American idea, starting with the Declaration this day in 1776 and the Founding Fathers including George Washington, what American schoolhouse encourages children to dress up as Uncle Sam or Betsy Ross on this Fourth of July? And who needs fireworks when they're going off every night in an increasingly anarchic New York? The men who signed the declaration would perhaps be astonished at the condition of these United States as they approach their 250th birthday. Or perhaps they would not be, for they well understood, even at the time, that societies, like man himself, have their natural rhythms of life, of vitality. Yet they were also confident enough, even as they drafted that audacious document, that its date of promulgation would resound down the centuries. At the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia on July 8, 1776, John Adams said that this day ought to be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great annual festivity, solemnised with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires and illuminations. They were confident enough to know that they would win and that there would be succeeding generations. And over the ensuing centuries, Americans have done as Adams commanded and celebrated with pomp parades, games, guns, bells and bonfires. I don't know how it's gone in your town, but in my corner of New Hampshire, there are discernible Fashions and phases in the exercises that attend the glorious fourth. In the early days, they were freelance and somewhat dangerous. In 1831, two 13 year old boys drowned while swimming on the fourth. And I can never pass the corner of the cemetery that houses the Hovey and Conant families without wondering what the Independence days of 1832, 1833, 34, 35 were like for them. Days of jubilation for all your neighbours. And yet for you, a day to mourn your lost son. As a matter of fact, the very next 4th of July, 1832, a doctor died falling off a steamboat on the Connecticut River. Then came a rather serious kind of celebration – On the 75th anniversary of the Declaration, 1851, a brief but pertinent section from the scriptures was then read by Mr N Southard, followed by the Declaration of Independence read by the chaplain and music by the band. Uh, Mr Southard then commenced his remarks by saying that it was perhaps never more difficult to make an audience feel how highly they were blessed. We had lived to see the anniversary of our nation's independence in the year 1851, we had witnessed the departure of the 75th year since the day when some of the most noble men of the earth had pledged their lives and all that they possessed, that they might secure to us the blessings we now enjoy. In order to realize the greatness of the change which has been effected and our obligation to those by whom, with heaven's blessing, it was wrought, let us look back over a brief portion of the world's history. And he did look back, and his audience sat there very attentively. And then, as a reaction to the sober fourths of the mid-19th century, you started to get things like uh, the Horribles Parades... Uh, where people would dress up in strange, freaky, creepy uh, masks and costumes, none of which had anything to do particularly with the American founding, uh, but were just their way of mocking uh, the overdressed grandees and militias of the sober mid-19th century uh, July 4th. And then you just got a uh, descent into general rowdiness. My town built a town jail, not really because of any crime, uh, but just because they needed somewhere to dump people for a night who got a little bit out of hand during the 4th of July celebrations and it was too far to take them to the county jail. In 1892, one young man basically busted up the entire common. On July the 4th, it took eight men to subdue him and uh, lock him in a wagon painting shop. Uh, And then, full of high spirits, he wrecked that too. And so we built a small uh, two-cell jail uh, just next to the receiving tomb. That's, That's where they used to store the bodies if you died in winter. And uh, they had to wait till the ground had thawed to bury you. Uh, it's quite a nice sight if you look out of the uh, window of your cell and contemplate the receiving tomb. But that's why my town has a town jail, just because our Fourth of July has got a little frisky. Uh, we have a, a, a cannon on the common and it's fixed now. But it didn't used to be fixed. It's not a cannon that was put there to honor the Civil War. It turned up a little before the Civil War just because somebody found a cannon and decided it would look good on the cannon, on the common. But. It wasn't mounted, so it would get filled with stones and sod and powder and touched off, and then it would rocket and bucket around. And it was thought to be clever if you could get it to turn somersaults. And that meant that if you lived on the town common, <laughs> uh, your windows had to be prepared to take a hit on 4th of July. Uh, and I think the last time anyone tried that, it was actually the mother of uh, one of my kids' uh, music teachers whose, uh, whose windows bore the main brunt of that damage. And so now, after centuries of Uncle Sam and Betsy Ross and scripture and speeches and horribles parades and cannon firing, now we have silence. And the uncertainty of knowing whether any of the great 4th of July traditions will be permitted to survive in the new America being negotiated by feckless politicians in thrall to the mobs on the street. On this show, for the moment, Independence Day goes on. The Mark Stein Club presents the Hundred Years Ago show. America first. Oh, wait. No, Haying first. And a tribute from one republic to another. It's the 4th of July, 1920.
2: hundred years from today.
1: Your glorious fourth news update at their convention in San Francisco. The Democrats remain deadlocked after 22 ballots for a presidential nominee. On the 22nd ballot before adjourning till July the 5th, Woodrow Wilson won two votes, but this is not thought to indicate any great yearning for a third term by the incumbent president. Currently, Governor Cox of Ohio has a modest lead over former Treasury Secretary McAdoo. On this July 4th, we wonder what the founding fathers would make of a political innovation. On Independence Day, the Republican nominee Warren Harding has released a phonographic record of his campaign speech to be played at rallies he cannot attend personally. The theme of Senator Harding's address is America first.
3: Americanism really began when roped in nationality. The American Republic began the blaze trail of representative popular government. Representative democracy was proclaimed the state agency of highest human freedom. America headed the forward procession of civil, human, and religious liberty, which ultimately will affect The liberation of all
1: mankind. Mr. Harding concluded his speech by boldly declaring, call it the selfishness of nationality, if you will. I think it an inspiration to patriotic devotion to safeguard America first, to stabilise America first, to exalt America first, and to live for and revere America first. The Republican candidate is spending this glorious fourth driving his automobile from the national capital to his home in Marion, Ohio. Accompanying the senator are Mrs. Harding and a secret serviceman. The nominee has been greeted by many well-wishers en route just outside Wheeling, West Virginia, a large touring car doing at least 30 miles per hour drew parallel with Mr. Harding's vehicle, and a man in the back seat reached over to hand the senator a large Wheeling stogie. Mr. Harding said thanks and lit up immediately, and some miles down the road at McClure's Hotel was seen to buy more stogies. Oh, there is a special group for those Americans who are such real-life nephews of their uncle Sam that they were born on the 4th of July. Membership of the July 4th Legion is restricted to those who entered this world on the fourth day of the seventh month, Independence Day. And this Independence Day, they sent birthday greetings to one of their own, Senator Harding's vice-presidential running mate, Calvin Coolidge, born on July the 4th in Plymouth, Notch, Vermont. The July 4th Legion, with members all born on Independence Day, send you hearty birthday greetings on our mutual birthday. Like Senator Harding, Governor Coolidge also released a phonographic record of his campaign speech.
0: The expenses of the government reach everybody. Taxes take from everyone a part of his earnings and force everyone to work for a certain part of his time for the government. When we come to realize that the yearly expenses of the governments of this country, the stupendous sum of about $7,500,000,000, we get $700,000,000, is needed by the national government and the remainder by local government. Such a sum is difficult to comprehend. It represents all the pay of five million wage earners receiving five dollars a day working 300 days in the year if the government should add 100 million dollars of expense it would represent four days more work of these wage earners these are some of the reasons why i want to cut down public expense i want the people of america to be able to work less for the government
1: The Republican vice-presidential nominee sounds all very clever with his economic theories there, but when he heads home to spend his and the nation's birthday... At the house where he was born, he's just another pair of hands needed to work on his father's farm at a time of continuing labour shortages. Calvin Coolidge has spent today haying in the small, isolated community where John C. Coolidge was for over 40 years the town constable. This has celebrated America's Independence Day with a parade of French wartime orphans, representing all the children whose needs have been met by the generosity of the United States and its citizens, waving small American flags and cheering Vive l'Amérique, The boys and girls paraded from the Place de la Concorde to the Tuileries, where they were reviewed by the American ambassador Hugh Wallace, along with the former president Monsieur Poincaré and Madame Poincaré. Then Mademoiselle Raymond Petit, whose father was killed at Verdun, approached the ambassador and spoke. Mr Ambassador, I am a little Paris girl. I was seven years old when my father was killed in the war. My brothers and I cried a lot, but Mother didn't see us cry because she was always mourning. Then one day, Mother began to smile again, and she told us that on the other side of the big sea, there were a lot of little boys and girls who were going to help us. They sent us letters, and we answered them. Mother says that in speaking to you, it is the same as if we spoke to all the children and big people in America. So, Mr. Ambassador... We say that we like you very much and we will always love you. At the Supreme Court, Justice Tierney has been busy in the run-up to Independence Day swearing in new American citizens. He insists that all aliens grasp the staff or the folds of the national colours as they take their oath of allegiance to the United States. And his honour also warns these new citizens of evil associations and ideas antithetical to the government of this nation. For a number of years, said Justice Tierney, they have come to our shores from foreign lands, many who should not have been permitted to land on these shores. We did not bring them or invite them here, but they came, were welcomed and received equal opportunity to thrive. We safeguarded them in their lives and property. We offered them and their children education and we looked after the health of all of them. All we asked in return was that they live orderly lives. The response of some of these has been disorder. They preached anarchy and social destruction. They secretly and openly advocated the overthrow of our government. They counseled disobedience to our laws and disrespect for authority and used our public places as forums for the preaching of disloyalty to our flag and all that it stands for. And a number of them have been apprehended and deported. We do not want this sort of humanity here. And I doubt whether they are wanted anywhere unless it be in some parts of Russia. Brooklyn marked July the 4th with a race riot. A white man was shot and a Negro was stabbed seven times at the junction of Flatbush Avenue Extension and Myrtle Avenue. The race riot began when a group of Negroes disputed the right of way of several white men. As dawn broke on July 4th, news came that General William C. Gorgas, former Surgeon General of the United States Army, had died in London. General Gorgas was affectionately known as physician to the world for the immense benefits his approach to public health has brought to millions of people around the globe. As the preeminent sanitarian of his generation, he recognised that the best way to control yellow fever, malaria and other infectious diseases was to control the mosquitoes that spread them. His use of mosquito netting, fumigation and swamp draining eliminated yellow fever from Havana and enabled the timely construction of the Panama Canal. General Gorgas was taken ill while travelling in Europe and died at the Queen Alexandra Military Hospital in London, where shortly before his passing he was given an honorary knighthood by King George V. And that's The Way of the World, July 4th, 1920.
2: A hundred years from today,
1: a hundred years from today. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. On the 4th of July, 1776, Francis Hopkinson was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Later, he served the young nation in various capacities. He was a member of the Navy Board. He was treasurer of the Continental Loan Office. He was the first federal judge of the United States District Court of Pennsylvania. Beyond that, He designed the first United States coin, the first paper money, the first two versions of the American flag, stripes with stars in the top left quadrant. He designed the Great Seal of New Jersey and supervised the creation of the Great Seal of the United States. Francis Hopkinson did a lot of things and did them rather well. Uh, He was also an author a harpsichordist and a composer. In fact, his song of 1759, My Days Have Been So Wondrous Free, is credited as being the very first American composition, the first, that is, by an American-born composer, to be committed to paper and to permanence. Here is a poem by Hopkinson uh, that is something of a uh, rarity. Uh, Not just one of the first poems written in A New Republic, not just one of the first poems written about Independence Day, but a poem about that historic day written by a man whose signature on that document helped make it historic. Twelve years after signing the Declaration, a versatile American puts his signature on a poem about the meaning of that day. By Francis Hopkinson. An ode for the 4th of July, 1788. O oh, for a Muse of Fire To mount the skies, and to a listening world proclaim. Behold, behold, an empire rise. An era new, as he flies, hath entered in the book of fame. On Allegheny's towering head, echo shall stand. The tidings spread, and o'er the lakes and misty floods around. An era new resound. See! Where Columbia sits alone and from her star-bespangled throne Beholds the gay procession move along And hears the trumpet and the choral song She hears her sons rejoice, looks into future times and sees The numerous blessings heaven decrees And with her plaudit joins the general voice "'Tis done, tis done, my son! she cries, "'in war a valiant and in council wise. "'Wisdom and valour shall my rights defend, "'and o'er my vast domain those rights extend. "'Science shall flourish, genius stretch her wing. "'In native strains Colombian muses sing,' Wealth crown the arts, and justice clean her scales, commerce her ponderous anchor weigh, wide spread her sails, and in far distant seas her flag display. My sons for freedom fought nor fought in vain, but found a naked goddess was their gain. Good government alone can show them aid in robes of social happiness arrayed. Hail to this festival, all hail the day, Columbia's standard on her roof display, and let the people's motto ever be, United thus, and thus united Free. A poem from me to you this Independence Day by Francis Hopkinson. An ode for the 4th of July, 1788. Columbia sits alone, Columbian muses sing, Columbia's standard on her roof. Francis Hopkinson would be amazed to see how much of the early iconography of America we have cast aside. Wisdom and valor shall her rights defend. But we have thrown aside Colombia. For what? <sharp inhale> saddest and most pathetic Independence Day? Oh, uh, no question. That would be July 4th, 2015. As some listeners may know, the uh, Stein Worldwide Corporate Headquarters is located in Woodsville, which is part of the township of Havel, New Hampshire. Actually, the only reason listeners would have any cause to know it at all is that an hilariously inept attack poodle called Bernie Quigley wrote in the Hill newspaper... Uh, that this guy, Stein, had no idea what the real, authentic America was like. And to demonstrate the point, he plucked three real, authentic, entirely random American places off the map. Well, two off the map and one off his LP collection, and said that Stein would get a rash in real places like Tobaccoville, North Carolina, Haverhill, New Hampshire, or Lucanburg, Texas. What are the odds of that? Of all the bazillions of pinpricks on the American map, Quigley takes a blind stab and hits mine. So on this particular 4th of July, I was in uh, Haverhill, New Hampshire, working on my Quigley rash. I'd had to swing by Stein Global Headquarters in Woodsville for one reason or another and got there about 9.45, and already the elderly veterans and widows and spinsters were camped out in their lawn chairs holding their miniature flags in readiness for the 11 o'clock parade. Got to get there early, grab a good spot, but I figured I could get the work wrapped up at the office and still skidaddle back to the main drag. ...and catch the 4th of July observances. For decades, uh, Woodsville has joined with Wells River across the bridge in Vermont... ...to host one of the biggest Independence Day parades around. Between them, they got a population of about 1,500. But folks come from neighbouring towns because they seem to like the whole twin state vibe. So the parade always starts in Woodsville, marches down Central Street... ...and over the Connecticut River into Vermont, where it wraps up on Main Street, Wells River... Anyway, one thing led to another, and I had my head stuck in some rather tedious materials from the Man versus Stein lawsuit when I heard the sound of the band approaching, so I thought, whoops, the festivities are underway, i better get up to Central Street. And by the time I got to the front door and out of the building, I didn't need to hurry along to the parade because the parade had hurried along to me. And instead of heading straight on and over the bridge to Vermont, all the beauty queens and 4H floats and fire trucks had hung a left and come straight past my office door, which struck me as weird because they would never done that before. And judging from the thin knot of people out on the street to watch, no one else had been expecting it. So the parade went down the hill and petered out at the community field. And afterwards I found out what had happened. Over on the Vermont side, at 10.15am, 45 minutes before the parade was due to start, the one-man police department, Constable Glenn Godfrey, had noticed that the detour signs had not been posted on the roads. I wouldn't want to make this sound more complicated a problem than it is. By roads, I mean that Wells River basically has two of them, an east-west road and a north-south road. And Constable Godfrey had three-quarters of an hour to use his witten ingenuity to find a workaround, to show a little bit of... Oh, what's the word? independence, independence of mind. Instead, with 45 minutes to go, a part-time village constable cancelled the Independence Day parade, as he later told the local reporter, you're supposed to have the right signs out on the road. They just did not have the signs up. By law, I cannot let them have the parade without the signs. Boy, if only George the 3rd had thought to try that line with that Boston Tea Party thing, we could have skipped the whole revolutionary unpleasantness entirely. And incidentally, who is this they to whom Constable Godfrey refers? It's not the responsibility of the parade organisers to put signs up on Vermont streets. It's the responsibility of another agency of officialdom, the same officialdom that the part-time constable represents. So it would have been more correct to say we just did not have the signs up. As I said, it would have required three signs, one to the south, one to the north, one to the west. So if he'd asked uh, the two sheriff's deputies already there to join him, three men raising their hands to halt whatever very minimal traffic approached the village during the parade. Instead, he called the Orange County Sheriff's Department, who, with the classic brain dead cover-your-ass attitude of the bureaucracy, told the local copper to make sure that Uncle Sam shall not pass and to, quote, prohibit the parade from entering Vermont. Constable Godfrey was the Paul Revere of the hour. Instead of yelling the British are coming, he'd called the Sheriff's Office and yelled the loyal patriotic flag-waving American Americans are coming. After 240 years, that's what it's come down to. Happy Independence Day. Pin the flag to your ass and shelter in place. At 10.15, the Wells Riverside was just like the Woodsville side. The little old ladies had carved up the prime sidewalk real estate with their folding chairs. But with the additional complication of the reviewing stand where the parade announcer, the five float judges and the singer of the national anthem were already in position. But instead of doing anything to make the parade happen, Constable Godfrey instead told them that if they wanted any red, white and blue and a chorus of Eurogrand grand old flag, they needed to scram over to the New Hampshire side of the river because it ain't happening here. And that, too, is poignant and symbolic on Independence Day. Don't you find, increasingly, that this is a society where no one can make anything happen? That people can give you a thousand reasons why something can't happen but can no longer figure out a way to ensure that it can? And so the citizens of Wells River meekly shuffled over the Connecticut River Bridge to the designated parade-holding area in the adjoining state. By the way, consider that. If this hadn't been a twin-state parade and the granite state portion thereof not within Constable Godfrey's jurisdiction, there would have been no Independence Day observances at all. He wouldn't, in effect, have cancelled the entire holiday over failure of signage compliance. As effete and enfeebled as post-live-free-or-die New Hampshire is, granite staters are not quite as thoroughly castrated as are the heirs to Ethan Allen's Green Mountain Boys. So on the eastern bank of the Connecticut, the organisers decided the Woodsville-Wells River 4th of July parade would go ahead without the Wells River part, and hastily improvised a new route, which is why they wound up detouring down my road and past my office window. And here's the thing. Obviously, as it had never been intended to be part of any parade route, my road had no official signs up on it. And in fact, unlike the flat, even plain on which Wells River's main street is located, uh, the grade drops very steeply and very dramatically down to the community field. And yet, clinging on for dear life... As the floats plunge down the incline, all the cute little grade-schoolers and tiara-clutching beauty queens somehow manage to survive. Yet while I salute the New Hampshire end for declining to let some jumped-up Vermont twerp rain on their parade, I don't think that was quite the ideal solution. When someone like Constable Godfrey tells you you are no longer sufficiently independent to hold an Independence Day parade, the correct response is... Sorry, pal, we're coming through. You can stand in our path and we'll let the 4-H's plough you into the asphalt. Or you can call for backup from the Sheriff's Department and tase us into submission. But you're going to have to tase us all. Because isn't that what the Declaration of Independence was all about? George III thought this was the King's Highway and freeborn Americans told him, get lost creep, it's the people's highway. And on this Independence Day, the people are coming through. A people that lacks sufficient independence to hold an Independence Day parade mocks the very meaning of the day. As some old dead guys once said, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed.
0: And now, Stein Online presents
4: Mark Stein's Song of the Week.
1: This song is well over a century old and still widely known and not because it's a standard Uh, Endlessly recorded by Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga on celebrity duets albums. It's not a song for listening to, but for bellowing out. And so across the century, it's been kept alive, not by LPs and CDs from starry singers, but by being played and sung by small-town bands and Boy Scouts and ordinary citizens lining the parade route. (laughs) Town Band's repertory for the 4th of July parade doesn't change much year to year, and your grand old flag is a staple. It's 130 years younger than the Republic, but it seems to speak to a mid-to-late 19th century patriotic sensibility, the era when Old Glory and Uncle Sam and the Glorious Fourth established themselves as part of the seasonal scenery. From its most famous cinematic iteration in Yankee Doodle Dandy, here's James Cagney.
0: from the flame of dawn, the dawn of a new nation... And the white was the white of the snow at Valley Forge. The blue was the blue of the free open sky, and the stars were the thirteen sisters by the sea who built their home and called it liberty. To symbolize the spirit, the spirit of freedom, the spirit
5: That's the spirit.
1: That's Cagney on screen in 1942 as protean singer-songwriter George M. Cohan in a scene purporting to recreate the first night of Cohan's show George Washington Jr. It wasn't quite like that on stage, but that's where your grand old flag was introduced to the world, at the Herald Square Theatre in New York on February the sixth, nineteen 1906. In the course of the number, Cohan took a flag and head cocked to one side, marched it back and forth across the stage, a routine the crowd loved so much, he repeated it to one tune or another in many subsequent shows and via James Cagney in that smash hit 40s biopic. But this song was special. Cohan saw himself as the embodiment of the American spirit. His previous red, white and blue blockbuster from 1904 was more or less a valentine to himself.
0: I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy, Yankee Doodle do all die. A real live nephew of my Uncle Sam, born on the 4th of July.
1: Close enough. According to the birth certificate, he was born on the 3rd of July, 1878, although his biographer John McKay uh, made a strong case of the lyric is in fact more accurate than the Vital Statistics Office of Providence, Rhode Island. He was in show business all his life, ever since the night his dad carried baby George on stage for a scene in a Vaudeville skit called "The Two Dans." The family act soon expanded uh, to the four Cohans: Dad, Mom, sister Josie, and George. And by the time he was twelve or so, it was the young'un who got to do the famous curtain call. My father thanks you, my mother thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you. The Four Cohans disbanded in 1900, and so I've known only one man who ever heard that signature sign-off at a vaudeville theatre in Cheyenne, Wyoming, in the 1890s. Here's my old... Very old friend, George Abbott, aged 106.
3: I was in the fifth grade when we moved to Cheyenne, Wyoming. I think of it as my childhood. That's where the exciting part of my childhood took place. I do remember once seeing a show there, which must have been... A knockabout ragtime show. I'd, I'd forgotten all about it, but I can now see all those girls dancing. I can remember seeing a George M. Cohan show. My mother thanks you, my brother thanks you, and I thank you.
1: That was the uh, old sign off from the uh, the Cohen family.
3: I think that is when I became stage struck.
1: The late George Abbott recalling the four Cohans in the 1890s in Wyoming. And as he says, that's when he decided he wanted to go into show business, and he did. He went on to become the great writer and director of The Pajama Game, Damn Yankees, All Quiet on the Western Front, Pal Joey, Babes in Arms on the Town, Call Me Madam, and on and on.
3: Give my regards to Broadway, remember me to Harold Square. Tell all the gang at 42nd Street that I will soon be there. Whisper of how I'm yearning to mingle with the old-time throng. Give my regards to old Broadway. And say that I'll
1: be there ere long. Within five years of breaking up the family act, George M. Cohan was the first self contained star of the Broadway stage actor, singer, dancer, producer, director, author, play doctor, composer, lyricist. Your grand old flag started with a conversation. An old man to whom Cohan gave a ride one day in what was then an unusual sight on a country road, his automobile. Throughout the journey, the old-timer clutched a meticulously folded piece of cloth and began to reminisce about his Civil War days. He'd been at Gettysburg, carrying the flag at Pickett's Charge, and at the end of his recollection, he unfolded the tattered piece of material and revealed it to be the stars and stripes. It was all for this, the stooped veteran told his celebrity chauffeur. She's a grand old rag, like any good songwriter, Cohan banked the line. Usually he wrote his plays first and then fitted the songs in. But in this instance, he started with the veteran, the anecdote, the song idea, and then fashioned the play around it. George Washington Jr. told a somewhat improbable story about a snooty Anglophile senator who wants his son George to marry Lord Rothbert's daughter. George is in love with a nice American girl and is so disgusted by his father's un-American behaviour that he announces that henceforth the only father he has is the father of his country, and so changes his name to George Washington Jr. There were plenty of the usual Cohan jokes. Someone tells the story about Washington tossing a silver dollar across the Potomac, to which someone else points out that that's a pretty wide river to throw a coin across. Well, says the first fella, a dollar went a lot further, then. I like that one. But the night belonged to the recreation of that scene with the man from the rural Grand Army of the Republic post. A Civil War veteran shows George a tattered old banner, and as everyone admires it, he says, "'It's a grand old rag.'" And off Cohan goes with a rousing patriotic march. The crowd went crazy, most roaring their approval. Many moved to tears. Cohan went to bed that night convinced he had his biggest hit since Give My Regards to Broadway and Yankee Doodle Dandy. The next morning he woke up to a problem. Some gentlemen of the press and several patriotic groups thought he was being disrespectful in referring to Old Glory as a rag. Fearing demonstrations and audiences booing the song off the stage, he acted quickly. He loved the Civil War veterans affectionate word and he tried to keep it. You're a grand old flag though you're torn to a rag Uh, but in the end Cohan was a businessman and knew when he was beaten he dropped the rhyme and settled for repetition. You're a grand old flag, you're a high flying flag The sheet music was already in New York stores but he had the new version printed up and then he went around town snaffling up all the grand old rag copies and burning them. I believe there are six very valuable survivors still in existence today, if you've got a box of old sheet music mouldering in the attic. Uh, He wasn't quick enough, though, for the great tenor Billy Murray. Uh, The biggest record seller of the day, uh, Billy Murray had 169 hits between 1903 and 1927. And he'd already cut his version of the song under the original title.
2: There's a feeling comes the ceiling and it sets my brain a-reeling when I'm listening to the music of a military band. Any tune like Yankee Doodle simply sets me off my noodle. It's that patriotic something that no-one can understand. Way down south in the land of cotton, melody oh, untiring, ain't that inspiring? Hurrah, hurrah, we'll join the Jubilee, and that's going some for the Yankees by gum, Red, white, and blue, I am for you. Honest, you're a grand old rag. You're a grand old rag, you're a high-flying flag, and forever in peace may you wave. You're the emblem of the land I love, the home of the free and the brave. Every heart beats true under red, white, and blue, where there's never a boast or brag. But should old acquaintance be forgot, keep your eye on the grand old Flag.
1: The allegedly offensive term rag didn't stop Billy Murray selling a mountain of phonographic cylinders in 1906, and indeed it was the biggest selling recording of RCA Victor's first decade. Afterwards, Arthur Pryor's band and other performers stuck to the new name, and under that title, it became the first Broadway show tune to sell a million copies of sheet music. Regardless of whether it's offensive, rag is a much Much weaker word than flag. The R gets kind of swallowed and the F is much more forceful on the note. And after that, it's plain sailing all the way. You're the emblem of the land I love, the home of the free and the brave. Every heart beats
4: true for the red, white, and blue, where there's never a post or flag. But should all acquaintance be forgot, keep your eye on the grand old flag.
1: What's up with that should-old-acquaintance-be-forgot business? That's an old Kohan trick. A brand-new song shouldn't be that new. And to help make it sound like you already like it, uh, he was... uh partial to musical quotations, sticking bits of old hits in his purportedly new hits. Ah, but it was new enough. George M. Cohan, the Yankee Doodle Boy, born on the 4th of July. You're a grand old flag, a song born for the 4th of July and for over a century, a staple of millions of parades from Maine to Hawaii. One more time.
2: (laughs)
0: Mark Stein's Last Call.
1: Was there ever an independence day like July the 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the declaration and the first half century of a new nation? And on that happy Jubilee Day, a pair of elderly gentlemen, John Adams, the second president, and Thomas Jefferson, his vice president, and then his successor as third president, of a young republic now securely established, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both chance to die, if chance it was. The Virginia Senator John Randolph of Roanoke wrote, "'And so old Mr. Adams is dead, "'on the 4th of July too, just half a century "'after our Declaration of Independence "'and leaving his son on the throne. "'This is euthanasia indeed. They have killed Mr. Jefferson, too, on the same day. But I don't believe it. The two men, sometime friends and longtime foes, held dramatically different visions of what the United States of America should be. But both recognized, as its 50th anniversary approached, that whatever it was, it was because of them. And so, although both in poor health, they had a vested interest in staying alive to see their baby reach a milestone birthday. You know how that works? We've all known or at least read about some feisty old-timer who's determined to stick around to his centenary and then having done so promptly expires three days after blowing out the candles on his cake. In the case of Adams and Jefferson... There was also an element of competition in that the one did not wish to expire before the other. John Tyler, America's 10th president, said that Jefferson had often expressed his wish to die on the glorious 4th, so, quote, that he might breathe the air of the 50th anniversary. Eulogizing the sage of Monticello a few days after his passing, New York Congressman Churchill Camberling said... The body had wasted away, but the energies of a powerful mind, struggling with expiring nature, kept the vital spark alive till the meridian sun shone on our 50th anniversary. Then, content to die, the illustrious Jefferson gave to the world his last declaration. I have done, said he, for my country and for all mankind, all that I could, and I now resign my soul without fear to my God, my daughter to my country. Meanwhile, up the eastern seaboard at the Adams House in Massachusetts, his granddaughter would recall the doctor offering the second president an experimental medical treatment, which he said would either prolong his life another two weeks or see him dead within 24 hours. It proved to be the latter. John Adams' last words were Thomas Jefferson survives. In fact, Jefferson had predeceased Adams by about six hours. Jefferson's last words were his refusal of laudanum to ease the pain. No, doctor, nothing more. But in fact, for both men, Their penultimate words reveal what was really on their mind. Had they made it to the big day? Is it the fourth? asked Jefferson through the blur of medication. It is a great day, declared Adams through the fog of his. It is a good day. As Daniel Webster put it in his eulogy for both men, Adams and Jefferson are no more. On our 50th anniversary, the great day of National Jubilee, in the very hour of public rejoicing, in the midst of echoing and re-echoing voices of thanksgiving, while their own names were on all tongues, they took their flight together to the world of spirits. If it be true that no one can safely be pronounced happy while he lives, if that event which terminates life can alone crown its honours and its glory, what felicity is here. The great epic of their lives, how happily concluded! Poetry itself has hardly terminated illustrious lives and finished the career of earthly renown by such a consummation. If we had the power, we could not wish to reverse this dispensation of the divine providence. The great objects of life were accomplished. The drama was ready to be closed. It has closed. Our patriots have fallen but so fallen at such age with such coincidence on such a day that we cannot rationally lament that the end has come. It cannot but seem striking and extraordinary that these two should live to see the 50th year from the date of that act, that they should complete that year, and that then... On the day which had fast linked forever their own fame with their country's glory, the heavens should open to receive them both at once. As their lives themselves were the gifts of providence, who is not willing to recognise in their happy termination, as well as in their long continuance, proofs that our country and its benefactors are objects of his care? We are not deceived. There is no delusion here. No age will come in which the American Revolution will appear less than it is one of the greatest events in human history. No age will come in which it shall cease to be seen and felt on either continent that a mighty step, a great advance, not only in American affairs, but in human affairs, was made on the 4th of July, 1776. And no age will come, we trust, so ignorant or so unjust, as not to see and acknowledge the efficient agency of those we now honour in producing that momentous event. Our own firmament now shines brightly upon our path. Washington is in the clear upper sky. These other stars have now joined the American constellation. They circle round their centre and the heavens beam with new light. Beneath this illumination... Let us walk the course of life and at its close devoutly commend our beloved country, the common parent of us all, to the divine benignity. Dead on July the 4th, 1826, at the age of 90 and 83 respectively, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson.
4: When old friends were here In days that are flown, how fond were the hands which oft clasped my own! The pathways of life were pleasures sunny hue, And voices were near with tones warm and true. All are gone, no loved ones near, I weep for the happy days when old friends were here, When old friends were here! Those gentle friends, are oh dear, I weep for the happy days when old friends were here.
1: In the midst of death, there is life, new life. Born on the day that Adams and Jefferson took their leave, July 4th, 1826, The first great American songwriter, Stephen Foster. That's a song of his I wish we heard more when old friends were here. You wouldn't know it from the last month, but it really isn't so bad being American. In fact, if you look at it with the right attitude, you're extremely fortunate. You're a
5: lucky fellow, Mr. Smith, to be able to live as you do and to have that swell Miss Liberty Gal. Carrying the torch for you You're a lucky fellow, Mr. Smith Do you know just how highly you raise? You should thank your lucky doesn't I mean? You should thank all 48 Man, you've really got a family tree with Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln and Lee, you're lucky to have ancestors like that. Don't you know you were born with a feather in your hat? You're a bear wealthy gent I don't care if you haven't to sand you've got your American way and brother that ain't hey if some poor people could choose they'd love to be in your shoes that proves that your good fortune's no mere you're a lucky fellow Mr. Smith
1: Man, you've really got a family tree with Washington Jefferson Lincoln and Lee Washington gone Jefferson, gone. Lincoln and Lee, gone. I guess their luck ran out. But still and all, you're a lucky fellow, Mr. Smith. Happy Independence Day to you and yours from sea to shining sea.
0: The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Boy,
5: you're rolling in a lot of wealth. Your speech is free, yes sir. and you got your health. Sure, you got your health, and tell me why not. Take a look at the great Constitution we got. We're 130 million strong, and we're sticking with you who right along. And I mean that all, all on the square. I know, I declare. You're blushing red, white, and blue, but buddy, that's all right too, because those colors look good on you. You're a lucky fellow, Mr. Smith. You're a lucky fellow, and if others could choose, they would love to be in your little shoesies. That proves that your good fortune's no myth. You're a lucky fellow, Mr. Smith.
0: rights reserved.